This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Good afternoon. I'm uh, Naftali Kaminsky. I'm uh, the pulmonary critical care and sleep medicine division chief at Yale and also the outgoing president of the Association of Pulmonary Critical Care and Sleep Medicine Division Chiefs. And uh, I really wish we had a shorter title because this is really hard to say. Um, And I'm really excited today because we just had our annual APCCSD meeting and our keynote speaker was um, a person that I've known before. I read her writing and I followed her on Twitter. Uh, Dr. Argavan Salas, and today she actually gave us a talk about uh, ending sexual harassment in our disciplines. Um, and impromptu, I asked her whether she would be available to do a podcast, and she said yes. So thank you, Argavan. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. So, do you want to tell us something about yourself, your background? Sure. Um, Well, I think it's important and relevant to note that I was an engineering major as an undergrad, um, and I grew up loving math and science, and I never really thought about the fact that I'm a woman. That wasn't really um, at the front of my mind, uh, because I just would show up and do the work in class, and I really liked it, and I always did well. Um, I then went to medical school um, thinking that I could combine my interest in science and working with people and um, then decided to go into surgery because I loved um, being able to do something relatively quickly that was going to be able to help people. Um, And so I did um, most of my training at Stanford. And it was actually during my residency that I started to notice that maybe people weren't all getting treated the same. Mm -hmm. Up Up until then, even all the way through medical school, I really felt like as long as I showed up and I worked hard and, you know, brought the best of myself to what I was doing, mm-hmm. that it was recognized um, and rewarded. But once I got to residency, that's where I started noticing that maybe it wasn't quite like that, um, where things that to me were less relevant, like, for example, my posture on rounds, were being noted as opposed to all the hard work that I was putting in, showing up at 3 or 3.30 every day for my entire intern year and staying until the work was done, you know, this was a while back. So I was, you know, often there until at least 7 or 8 at night and then back again at 3, 3.30. And none of that was ever really valued, it seemed. Um, But, you know, what the look on my face was, how much I was smiling, um, those kinds of things seemed to matter to people. And that was really interesting to me because I didn't see that happening to the men. Um, and we talked a little bit this morning about how the work environment is definitely different for women in the hospital than it is for men. There's a lot more time spent building relationships with the various people who are such important parts of the healthcare team, so our nurses and our various therapists who help us take care of patients. Women seem to have to spend a lot more time cultivating those relationships in order to have credibility than do men, so I noticed that as well. Um, So so how did you actually notice it? Again, as... Mm -hmm. As you may guess, as a man, I'm blind to these things. Right, right. Um, Well, I would notice on rounds, for example, if um, when I was a junior resident and the team happened to be led by a man at the time, that we would walk in and out of rooms and, um, like, in the ICU is usually where the nurses are actually there. Mm -hmm. So that's where I noticed it the most because the nurses are right at the bedside as we're rounding. 
Um, and they would walk in and sometimes just rattle off a series of things they wanted done, and um, it was very no-nonsense, and here's we're doing blah, 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 and we would walk out, and there was no, you know, questioning of that, and I'm not saying that's good or bad, but there's no questioning of that, and it was just all, you know, those things were assumed to just be happening, and then they were happening, um, whereas when, for example, I was a resident on nights in the ICU, and I would be sitting, you know, we had electronic health record even then, so I would sit in our workroom, and I would put in orders, and I would notice that they weren't being done, you know, and I'd be very busy, right, managing multiple patients, and then I'd go back an hour later to check on that ABG or, or DBG that I'd ordered and notice that it wasn't even drawn yet, mm-hmm. and then I would have to go down to the room, and then the nurse would tell me that, um, you know, for whatever reason, maybe he or she didn't think it was indicated and so was just kind of waiting until something pushed them to do it. And then I have to explain why I think it's important or relevant or why I made the order. Um, And then it would get done. Um, But then, of course, how many other things were building up that I needed to manage while I was rationalizing my choices. Um, And, and, not that communication is, of course, more communication is always better. And someone might say, well, maybe every doctor should be talking to every nurse every time an order is put in. And I actually don't necessarily disagree with that. But sometimes you're very busy yeah. taking care of very sick patients. And definitely there was a difference in the expectation of what that communication looked like from the men versus the women. Yeah. You know, this is interesting because I, I remember this actually from my residency that um, the male was, yeah, you have this allure of invincibility and mm-hmm. people do what you tell them very quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I remember that in our residency, again, I, I trained in Israel, it was much longer mm-hmm. and you spend a really long time in the same place. Mm-hmm. And so it's not an issue of familiarity. The nurses know you're excellent. And so the the women residents have always to maintain the relationship with the support staff, mm-hmm. which we people were really grateful when a man said, happy birthday. No, that's yeah. exactly right. So when men do that same type of behavior, everyone thinks yeah. they're God. Like, wow, what an incredible person he was that he came and asked me about my kid or my weekend or whatever. Men, when they engage in that behavior, are, are just rewarded extremely. Whereas women, when, when they do it, it's normal and expected. And if they don't do it, then there are huge penalties yeah. to pay. So, so it's a big discrepancy. So when, from this recognition, how did it evolve to actually yes. being active or vocal? So I decided to get a Ph.D. in education, mm-hmm. and I did that mainly because I was frustrated with medical training, um, and I felt like we weren't really training physicians and surgeons in a um, methodical way that's based on clear pedagogy, and instead we're just relying on patients to roll through the ER, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and most of the people who do the teaching aren't trained as teachers and all these issues. So I decided I was, I was going to maybe learn more about that and go learn from people who study how mm-hmm. we teach and how we train and, and be able to bring back some of that um, into surgery. And so initially when I went to do the PhD, I thought I was going to do curriculum design and assessment. Mm-hmm. And then very early on I took a class um, about it was leadership in diverse organizations, um, which I thought really was about different types. I thought the diversity there was about the types of the organizations, but it was actually about the types of people mm-hmm. who are in organizations. Um, and I learned about stereotype threat, which is this idea that our performance 
can be negatively impacted when there's a negative stereotype about an aspect of our identity. So if we're a, a woman is taking a math test and she's asked her gender before the math test, her performance goes down right. just from being aware that there's a stereotype that women aren't good at math. So I learned about that, and that was really fascinating to me. And so then I ended up actually studying that for my PhD. I looked at the stereotype that men are better surgeons than women and how that impacts women who are training to become surgeons. And that's kind of how I started down this path, and I just kept going. So today you gave several examples of communications that insert, actually, sex relationship into professional mm -hmm. discussions. And I thought what I really liked about it, they actually pulled, picked things that were very mild. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was looking at the room, and you could see that some of the participants until you actually explain, mm -hmm. they never understand what was wrong about these <laughs> and, I, and I thought this was brilliant because if you, if you describe something horrible, everybody has their moral indignation. Yes. They actually, everybody in the room said, oh, I would never do so. Every right, everyone agrees room. that rape is bad. Yeah, exactly. Yes. But then when you show these situations and then you say, oh, I may do it, I may not think about it. Yeah. Um, there's a different type of reflection. So could you tell me a little bit about this? And actually, the bigger side of it is actually how you help men or men in power to avoid this kind of yeah. communication. Yeah, I think that's a great question. And, um, you know, basically the type of thing that we're talking about is in the middle of a an academic conversation about something that's work-related, somebody inserts, you know, an emoji with a heart or like a blow kiss emoji or mm -hmm. something like that. Or they say something about your appearance. And um, for women, even though, uh, you know, someone might think I'm just being nice, for a woman who's engaged in a um, professional conversation to get those types of responses, um, I think it, it sets us back a little bit like, wait, I thought we were having a professional conversation and now you're um, – either trying to be my friend or trying to hit on me, and I'm, I'm not sure what's going mm -hmm. on, but that's not what I'm here for. And I think that it's actually pretty straightforward. I, I think the examples that I showed you guys, I don't think those things would have been said to a man. Yeah. And so if there's something that you're writing that you wouldn't say to a man, then maybe don't write it. And it's the same thing when people say, you know, mentoring in the age of Me Too, like I don't want to um, – I'm worried about, as a man, I'm worried about going to lunch one-on-one -on -one or dinner one-on-one -on -one or traveling with a woman. You know, if it's something you don't feel comfortable doing with a woman, then you ought not do it with a man either. You know, we don't have to, like, do all these mental gymnastics to figure out who, what, when. Just you have a, have a thing that you do, and if you do it, you do it with anyone and everyone, and if you don't do it, you don't do it with anyone. Yeah, that, that makes sense. It definitely makes sense. And uh, I actually... You know, it's actually a really good quote, you know, right? So, yeah, if you would do it with everyone, you can do it. <laughs> yeah. right? and, then, and then I think it's a brilliant distinction because, again, coming from a society that definitely was more sexist than mm -hmm. American society and actually never liking, actually, mm -hmm. when, I, when I arrived the first time in my career or to UCSF in 1996, I actually felt liberated. Mm -hmm. Because 
Actually, people were very professional yeah. and also very respectful of all the crazy ways of life that everybody had. <laughs> very different. Well, from, you were in San Francisco. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and it was a good time. And, and it's, in some ways, I find it almost amazing that, whatever, 20 years later, we're still mm-hmm. in this, dealing with the same questions. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other thing, I do think there's something, and I think that's what some of definitely the men in the crowd and potentially don't understand it becomes extremely liberating when you can actually speak with people as people mm-hmm. right um, the only thing is you need training yeah. <laughs> well um, I think there's a lot of trepidation about um, on the on the part of thoughtful people mm-hmm. about what to say and what not to say and um, you know I I really think it's just common decency like if if you're comfortable making that statement in front of a whole room of people, no matter who else is around, then you're probably fine. But if you find yourself thinking like, oh, here's something I'm going to tell this person later, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, or good thing there's no one else around so I can say this thing, um, then that's probably not a, an appropriate thing. That said, I recognize there are some things like feedback, for example, definitely doesn't need to be done you know, in an auditorium, but could still be done in a public place. Um, you know, so that the person has, doesn't feel like everything's being exposed, but you also aren't in a room with the door shut and, and potentially right. people feel uncomfortable. And um, tell me a little bit about the Time's Up Healthcare. Sure. Um, so Time's Up Healthcare is the official affiliate of Time's Up Now. It's a national organization with the goal of um, creating safety, equity, and dignified workplaces in healthcare. So our goal is to do that for pretty much all people who work in healthcare settings. So that includes um, nurses, physical therapists, respiratory therapists, pharmacists, pretty much everyone you can think of, um, because we recognize that, one, everyone deserves to work in an equitable workplace, Mm -hmm. and two, that um, patient care and outcomes are really impacted by the um, environment of a workplace, and that's ultimately what we're all in it for, is to take care of patients and to do that the best way we possibly can. Um, so we've got m- multiple different things that we're trying to do, and we've just it's only been um, a short time since we launched. So we're early on in our journey, but I'm very excited for what the organization is going to hopefully be able to do for healthcare. So are there any um, resources or things that people should look at if they're interested in potentially supporting uh, the yeah. organization? Or? Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. Um, in terms of support, absolutely. Um, we take donations from, through our website, timesuphealthcare.org, and all that money goes to supporting the organization and the Time's Up Legal Defense Fund, which supports people who are experiencing harassment in their workplace. Um, in terms of resources, there are some resources on our website, um, and we are actually working to build more um, resources in terms of training and education. Mm-hmm. Um, so hopefully we'll be able to get those out on the website as well. Um, but that's kind of the active work that we're currently doing. Yeah, I, I must tell you that you know when I sort of got word that this kind of activity was happening, I was very excited and was glad to be invited to be on this Allies video mm-hmm. because uh, one of the interesting things. Uh, so I don't consider myself a privileged per- person. I'm a son of refugees. My mother had cumulative two years in school. Mm-hmm. and grew up with a single mother from relatively poor background. 
Um, but as I grow up, grow mature, I realize that at least in the society I live in now, mm-hmm. I'm a, becoming an old white man. <laughs> Hopefully, I get to be an old white man. Um, but uh, one of the things that I realize is that we all are really good at understanding our own uh, disadvantages. Mm-hmm. You know. But then there is this moment that you actually see that somebody else, and it, although I was always aware, last few years, uh, with the increased awareness about women's rights, and actually with the, with the really recognition that there was a huge jump in the 60s and the 70s, and the 80s, and then basically we went into a plateau and potentially went back. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I find myself almost angry. I can actually mm. get angry when I think about it because it's 50% of the population. Mm-hmm. And no matter in what society, and actually no matter what type of disadvantage you have in your life, if you're a woman, it's worse. Mm-hmm. So that's why I'm extremely appreciated of this effort and being vocal. I wanted to ask you about a slightly different thing, which is how does actually does, how does it feel to come as an activist or as a <laughs> representative? Because that's a different thing than yeah. So today you stood in front of a, a room, probably as um, a group that's relatively in medicine is actually enriched with women, mm-hmm. but still we're not close to fifty percent. Right. Division right. I mean, how many? Five or six? How many women were in that room? I um, no, there were probably eight. Eight. Okay. Yeah, uh, and many of them are actually in our leadership. Right. Which uh, is good. Yeah, but but so but how does it feel? So but the room when you look, even when I looked at it, because now that I have the insight, I actually count heads. <laughs> so the majority is men. So how does yes. it feel? You come as an activist. Yes. Are you nervous? Are you what? What? How does it go? Yeah. Um, I think for this particular group, I was a little bit anxious about it because, um, everyone is very accomplished, Mm -hmm. um, and has a lot of responsibility at their own organization. So I feel the responsibility then to make sure that I give these people the information and the tools that I think will be most helpful to them going back to their own institutions, recognizing I don't know anything about their institutions Mm -hmm. and what their particular challenges are. But, um, you know, I, because I've been studying this for so long, I know a lot of different sets of data and a lot of different studies, and it's always really an academic exercise to figure out, okay, which studies do I pull to make the points that I think are most salient? And, of course, no talk is perfect and no person is perfect, and so, you know, I, I always worry about that. Like, did I, like I today I cut out this um, slide on sponsorship and mentorship. Mm-hmm. Um just because of time, because I added in more harassment stuff and the National Academy stuff um, than I do for my just basic gender equity talk. Um, And, you know, I'm still thinking, like, with a room of people who can act as really powerful sponsors, was that a good choice? Or should I have left that one Mm -hmm. in? I don't know. Um, But but it's great to have that opportunity to talk with such um, an important group of people who – are willing to sit and spend their time thinking about this problem, which is a really big step. Um, and so I want to acknowledge that because that's a big deal. Um, and then hopeful that they're going to go out and do something with that information. Um, I think I, I enjoy these opportunities. I think they're really important. I'm grateful for it. 
Thank you. Uh, I think chief, chiefs are actually ideal. They run, uh, you know, a group of faculty between 80 mm -hmm. to 20, let's mm -hmm. say. Mm -hmm. um, they're very involved in faculty development. Mm -hmm. They actually influence a lot of aspects of uh, faculty life, as you know. Mm -hmm. So I think it, it and and you know I was sort of assessing the room and also definitely people, even if they know it changes the awareness and I think that your presentation was amazing in this sense. I do think we'll see change. So <laughs> the only thing I don't even know how we measure it. Yeah. But that's going to be a, uh, our actually our one of our next discussions mm -hmm. in the uh, chiefs forum is when you sort of one of the things we wanted to do with the purpose of this meeting today was remove the responsibility from the Title IX officers or from mm -hmm. the institutions. They, have, they should be held responsible, no doubt about it, but we cannot hide about behind it. Yes. Right. And I think that your message was really good, and I think people got it, that it, a lot of the small interactions or mm -hmm. whatever... Um, People make a smaller direction are the things that. I mean, make that's the culture, hard, right? And that's yeah. the culture. Yeah. The everyday, you know, people not knowing that you are who you are, or not having for me the instruments that I need in the OR, or looking around like, where's the surgeon when I'm standing right in front of them? You know, all of those things are the culture of the right. place. Um, and even though in, in, in any one of those, you might say, oh, what's the big deal? But when it's pretty much every day. For those of us who are experiencing it, it, it is a big deal because right. it, it tells us constantly that we're not valued and important and, and seen. Mm -hmm. um, but the other thing that I, I just wanted to touch on um, is intersectionality because I didn't talk about that, um, I think, this morning. Um, and it's a really important point, which is that we know that underrepresented minorities face a lot of similar obstacles, like mm -hmm. what I described for women. And, and of course, women face all these uh, barriers based on their gender. And for reasons we don't fully understand, when people have more than one minority identity, then they seem to have exponentially more challenges, face right. that much more harassment um, and, and more undermining and all of that. And so we have to be, in, in times of healthcare, is very intentional about making note of that and being thoughtful about that when we're talking about policies and recruiting and hiring and all of that, um, because what happens a lot at institutions is that, let's say someone who has two identities, like a black woman or a Hispanic woman, gets hired, which is great, then the, the tendency is to then make that person be the diversity person mm -hmm. and sit on all the diversity-related tasks and, um, you know, be responsible in some way for diversity. But that person may not have an academic interest in diversity. That person may be a CF person mm -hmm. or, you know, I don't yeah. know what they And then now they're having to spend all their time doing these other things just because they have a certain background. And then they're less able to do the, the academic work that for them is what matters, their science, which then is um, a hindrance to them getting promoted. And so we have to be thoughtful about all of that. Yeah, I, I have no doubt that that's an important issue. So, thinking about today, again, we, we really advocate for the division chiefs to be a little bit concrete. Mm -hmm. um, act with urgency, basically, when you, when you discover something bad, mm -hmm. so sexual harassment. Um, 
there's actually ways to handle it. Not everybody understands it or or deals with it. But but actually, the main thing is actually, if you project urgency to your institution, your institution actually behaves differently yeah. when if you just let it go through the routes and refer your That's right. faculty. And then and the one or two events that I had to deal with the suspicion, my approach was we are not letting the sun set before we have a, a real plan, not mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. So I think that the idea is that basically as a leader, you project urgency and your yeah. door is opening to listening. And you never deny that the problem existed. That's yeah. right. That's right. Minimizing the person's concerns is not helpful because the problem doesn't go away exactly. just because you would like it to. Um, and what we know is that when there are people who are um, treating other people badly, it's not usually that they do that to one person. It's yeah. usually that they're doing it to many, many people. And just because you only heard about it from one person doesn't mean that's the only person who's experiencing it. And so when we um, turn our attention away from that and say, oh, that's not a big deal, then we are enabling that person to keep engaging in that behavior repeatedly with who knows how many people with how many people are alienated or turned away or leave because of that person. So it's more than just any time something like this comes up, it's more than just the one interaction that came mm-hmm. to your attention, um, which is hard sometimes for people to realize right. because the rest of it is more abstract. You don't know how many people, you don't know what situation, you don't know exactly what else was said, so it's a little bit harder to engage with it. But know that when you're seeing one thing, there's much more behind it that you don't know about. I think that that's an important comment, and I think that's um, in some ways the benefit of the local leader or the bu- local director is some of the things that are going to be hard for the institution, you can in a very relatively confidential, low-key, beyond the fact that you activate the channels, you actually do your quick due diligence. Mm-hmm. And as you said, I actually think you're exactly right. If there's, there's usually a trail of injury. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I like that phrase. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure I like it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it doesn't make me happy, but it, it does describe what happens. So, when we discussed all that, is there something that actually that faculty could do to help their chiefs to be better on gender issues in general mm-hmm. and definitely on har- on harassment, on microaggression, and other things? Yeah, I mean, I think um, like anything else, there has to be psychological safety first. Mm-hmm. Um, and the faculty have to feel like if they give feedback that it is valued, even if n- maybe you don't end up agreeing with them, but that you listen and that you think about it and that you explain your logic or why this happened or why this didn't happen or why this person said this or whatever, so that there's some engagement with it. I think the problem comes when either people don't say anything because they feel um, like there will be retaliation. Mm-hmm. Or when they say something and then nothing at all is done, even just validating them. And you just say, okay, I didn't really notice that, and I'll keep an eye out. Like, Mm -hmm. that's not a helpful response because someone has been keeping an eye out, and that's why they're coming to you. Um, And so there has to be something like, I'm so sorry you experienced that. Um, Have you – do you have any suggestions? You know, because that's – often the person who's coming to you has already thought about it quite a lot. Um, And so to start with what they would like to see done, that's the other thing we know about um, harassment and these types of behaviors is that when people report, when they report, 
it's not, which is not that often, but when they do, it's not necessarily that they want the person who did whatever it was fired. They often want an acknowledgement that something was wrong um, and a validation even from the, the perpetrator. Mm -hmm. And in a changing of that person's past so that that person doesn't do it anymore. And when we just push things aside, that doesn't happen, right? So my point is in that, that we need to ask people what their goal is. Like, why are they bringing this to your attention? Is it that they want a policy change? Is it that they want you to talk to a different faculty member? Or that they want you all to sit together? Or what, what is it that they want done? Um, because one, one of the things that discourages people from sharing is they come to you with something, and then you go, and, and, and they're unaware, and you go and talk to the perpetrator, and then the perpetrator comes back on the other side and talks to the person yeah. who spoke to you in the first place, and they're blindsided. So obviously that's something we all want to avoid. Well, that's actually, I'm not sure, but I think our best practice is that all these discussions are confidential, so you actually are never supposed to go to the perpetrator. Yes. Um, although we had, and we tried to do it in one of our retreats a couple of years ago, is what happens when you you suspect something wrong is going on. You have not seen it, mm -hmm. but you have a feeling, you know, there's these scenarios. Yeah. Um, how do you intervene? And I don't know that there's a good solution. Yeah. Um, I think, I think that the really the fundamental thing is that there has to be a sense of safety. So I'll give you an example. So yeah. somebody notices that... Um, the student looks extremely distressed, mm -hmm. the female student, when she leaves the faculty office. Mm -hmm. She doesn't complain. This person doesn't have a connection. So you think it's okay if this is a job to actually knock on the, on the faculty's door and say what's going on? Well, I mean, sure. I don't think you're violating anything to do that. But that faculty may not know. Mm -hmm what he or she said that caused that level of distress on the part of the student. Um, I actually think someone ought to check in with the, with student, the student first, yeah. you know, and say, oh, you know, I just noticed you looked a little upset. Is everything okay? Are you okay? Mm -hmm. I, mean, I think okay. we have to start with that um, because you also don't know. I mean, maybe they had a family member die. I mean, you don't yeah, know okay. what's going on. So you're saying, okay, establish at least a sense of what's going on and create a safe environment and move yeah. on. Okay. Yeah, because I think fundamentally, like, if you really want for your division, for people to be able to tell you about things that you are maybe suspecting but mm -hmm. you haven't seen yourself, then they need to feel that you will be receptive, whoever the, the leader is, will be receptive to the concern and will listen and will try to come up with a plan together, I think. Without that, no one will tell you anything. Okay. You know? even whether it's suspected or whether you saw it yourself or whatever. Because you could say, okay, well, I've noticed that whenever people come out of this person's office, they look really upset. You might then try to go talk to some of these people. But if they don't trust you and feel safe, they're not going to tell you anything. You go, oh, yeah, it's fine. Okay. You know, I think it has to start with that, that trust and safety. Yeah, I, I actually, in our previous podcast, I mentioned that one case actually in the lab that, there was a That's sense, right, yeah. yeah, and we could never get the, the, the sort of that she was a foreign postdoc. She would never complain about anything. She well, would right. not take a chance. Yeah, there are and, huge power differentials, yeah. right, when we have medical students and trainees and postdocs yeah. who 
And and that's, by the way, why all this stuff keeps happening, because right. they feel like they are not empowered to say something because they can't afford to lose whatever position it is that they have, and and nor should they have to. But unfortunately, there, even though there is anti-retaliation laws and all of that, these instances, as you know, are very specific. So once yeah. the story gets told, it doesn't take a lot of mental power for the perpetrator to figure out who was the one who said something. And then that starts a whole really negative cascade, or it can. And so that's where it becomes really tricky for how does the leader or how does the institution manage those things in order to really treat, in a mm-hmm. sense, the perpetrator and say, the, the, here's the consequence of your behavior. And I will tell you that sometimes probably people are not intending to be malicious or to be harassing. I really think that's true. Sometimes people are doing things unaware of the consequences yeah. of their behaviors. So. We have to help those people see what behaviors are not helpful mm-hmm. and then have some sort of recourse for that so that the people who are experiencing things can feel like, okay, if I do say something, Except something will come of it, and it won't necessarily all come down on me. And that's, that's I think, where our whole system falls apart and why people don't report because they just are going to get retaliated against, they're going to lose their job. They're the ones who leave. The, the people who are the targets of this yeah. stuff are the ones who leave. Well, and, and with most of the current laws now, um, 90% of the actions and decisions are confidential. Mm-hmm. So, and I think there is an over-interpretation of the confidentiality mm-hmm. uh, and also different states of different law regulation. But one of the clear things that we felt at Yale was that Everybody knew what's going on. Everybody knew that it wasn't handled good. Mm-hmm. But it was like the leadership would never share it with mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. until you know this became extremely public by the New York Times. Yeah. Uh, but I think there, the confidentiality is maybe some of it is important, but some of it is overinterpreted. And the problem is that the, the complainer for a long time doesn't even know what was done, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Unless it's a violent. Yes, that's right. You know, if, if there's no physical contact, there's not going to be any real action for a while mm-hmm. because during the investigation, you don't know and they're not mm-hmm. going to tell the person anything. Yep. Um, yep, that's very and, difficult. And sometimes even when they took action, they're not going to mention that's it. That's right. And, or they're not going to say what it was or just say, oh, we're, yeah. we're taking care of it or things like that. That's very hard. That's a very hard position to put someone in, who, especially if they've been through something traumatic, which I guarantee you if they're reporting it, it was because it was traumatic to them. Um, no, I think that's a really, really important point. Um, and so there's got to be, we've got to figure out something there, I think, to help people be able to come forward. I think part of it is, has to be basically the grassroots push, mm-hmm. you know, uh, in different levels, right? Both external organization, local leadership, um, and, and, and awareness. So um, I think we should wrap up and we should clear your schedule. <laughs> Many people who know you from Twitter want to meet you, I think. <laughs> and, uh, so any other comments, last thoughts? Uh, I mean, I guess I would just say that um, I'm really grateful for people like mm-hmm. you who are trying to understand what the challenges are and try to do something active to move us forward because Women are half the population, meaning we're only half the population. So we can't change the culture of an institution by ourselves or an organization by ourselves um, or eliminate barriers for any group of people by ourselves. 
So we all have to work together and, and really think about the goal being equity for everyone so that basically everyone has a chance to make a valuable contribution mm -hmm. and to succeed and grow in their career. I think that's what our goal should be. And if we all agree to that, then I think it's a little bit easier to move forward. No, I, I definitely agree. <laughs> um, and, and really, thank you for giving us a really uh, inspiring uh, talk and for everything that you do. The other thing that I learned in the last couple of years is from some of the responses that I've gotten is from some of the things I did as an ally, said, if that's what I'm getting as a man, mm -hmm. it must be really hard for a woman to do it. Right. It's very interesting yeah. how sometimes you feel like this is not important or why are you wasting your time? And frankly, at my, uh, at my stage of my career, I can decide where I waste my time. Yeah. <laughs> but I still get these comments, right? So I'm thinking, what does it mean for an early or mid-career faculty, again, woman, to come out, you know, basically stating the state of affairs and requesting change? So, you know... I, and not only me, many others, are really uh, true fans and admirers and oh, thank you. are really grateful for everything you do and definitely everything that Time Stop Healthcare is doing. Thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it.